I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 is one of those passages that many people have memorized. Such a wonderful passage and look forward to our study of it this morning. We've already looked at two uh, sections of Ephesians over the last couple of weeks uh, and we've actually gotten to the third sentence. Uh, chapter 1 Verse 3 through 14 is actually one sentence in the original language. And then what we looked at last week, 15 through 23, is another sentence. And now we're, we're going to look at verses 1 to 10, which is the third sentence. So we're breaking it down sentence by sentence here. Uh, make no mistake about it. But it, it, Paul has a, has a tendency to run on in his sentence. And, and I don't think that he would pass an English class with his run-on sentences. But it's packed full of wonderful stuff. And I hope that today the Lord will will open our eyes and ears to his word and, and be encouraged by, by what we read here. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us to have a deeper understanding of this passage. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to... Uh, our own sinfulness and, and the danger that we were or are in. And Lord, we pray that all of us would appreciate your great mercy and grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, Auburn University's football team. You know I had to say it sooner or later. Uh, but yesterday they won the Southeastern Conference Championship. And it was a great year for the Auburn Tigers, filled with many highlights, spectacular plays, and some come-from-behind victories. And that, in and of itself, is something over which Auburn fans, like myself, are rejoicing. But what makes the story even more great, or terrible, depending on your perspective, uh, is understanding where that team was this time last year. Uh, last year, Auburn's football team was dead last in the conference. They did not win a single conference game, and their two biggest rivals, Alabama and Georgia, beat them by a combined score of 87 to nothing. At the end of the year, uh, the coach was fired. Well, what a difference a year makes, and the appreciation of this year is maximized by remembering the bitterness of last year. What a change a year can make. Well, football is a trivial matter. It really, in the grand scheme of things, is, uh, is not all that important, though we place quite uh, too much importance on it sometimes. Uh, football 
being a trivial matter, uh, can, can have that space in our lives that is a place of too much importance, but eternity is not a trivial matter. Uh, what God has done for us in Christ is something that we should get more excited about than your team winning the championship. Sadly, that's not often the case. As ex- excited as football fans get over a good result, we should be infinitely more excited about what the Lord has done for us who have embraced Christ as Lord and Savior. That's where Paul is taking us this morning. He wants us Christians to appreciate what God has done for us, and he is maximizing the enjoyment of that by causing us to remember the depths from which we have been rescued. You see there the passage begins by talking about our plight, the human condition, dead in sins and trespasses, but then it talks about the wonderful rescue, but God, being rich in mercy, has stepped in and done something for these poor sinners. So yes, We're going to talk about some sin this morning. Uh, Sometimes we get criticized because we talk about sin so much, but you really cannot fully appreciate what God has done for you until, until you understand the hopeless situation in which you were in before God came in uh, and, and broke in and did something about it. If we don't understand the depths of sin from which God rescued us, we will not appreciate the riches of his grace and the magnitude of his love. J.C. Ryle says, Christ is never fully valued until sin is clearly seen. So Paul wants us to peer into the cesspool of the human heart for a few moments in order that we might appreciate the grandiose heights to which God elevates the believer. Well, I've broken it down, and if you have one of the handouts, you'll see there we've got two points today. The first is this. The human condition is one of spiritual death. Verses 1 through 3 tells us that everybody is born in sin and is spiritually dead. All humans without Christ are spiritually dead. You, along with all people who were ever born, are dead in sins and trespasses. You notice there that it talks about that that, uh, we all once lived, verse 3, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So he, he spares no one in his sweeping statements of the brokenness and spiritual deadness of all humanity. Some people think that we're born morally neutral. Well, that's not what the text is saying here today because he's talking about spiritual death. He's not talking about physical death. Uh, Of course, that couldn't be. That would make no sense. He's talking about how we are born in sin. People are not born into a state of innocence even though we see a cute little baby and we want to say that. No, there's a sin nature there. And you don't have to teach a baby how to sin. Uh, It's nature, not nurture. Nurture can help it along, but it's by nature. We're all sinners by nature and spiritually dead. Now we see the manifestations of the spiritual death. How How does it show itself in our lives? Well, three things. We live under the power of the world, we live under the power of the devil, and live under the power of the flesh. It tells us here that 
we were dead in the sins and trespasses in which we walked. Walk is a, a way of saying lived. This is the way that we live our lives. So as we live in sins and trespasses, we are living under the power of the world. They live according to the course of this world. They lived according to and under the control of the spirit of the world. According to the life of this world means according to the ruling principle of this world, the spirit of the world. Uh, If you look uh, how people live their lives in the world, it's not according to God's word. Uh, People aren't as bad as they can be. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we who are spiritual, the people who are spiritually dead are as bad as they can be, but everything that that, uh, they're engaged in, thought, word, and deed, is tainted by sin. We have wrong motivations, we have wrong actions, we have wrong thoughts. All of these things are are indicative of the brokenness and spiritual deadness of the world. And and we are included in that. All people are included in that. We live under the power of the world. We're going along with the way that the world is going if we are without Christ. Secondly, we live under the power of the devil if we are without Christ. Spiritual death exhibits itself by being under the power of Satan. It says here that you are following the prince of the power of the air. That's a way of talking about the devil. Now, people don't uh, like to talk about the devil. They kind of think of it as an antiquated term. We don't believe in stuff like that anymore, but that's not what the Bible says. The devil is real. He's an enemy of the church, God's people, and he's seeking whom he may devour, like a roaring lion, the Bible tells us. And people think, oh, well, you know, I may be without Christ, but I'm not a follower of Satan. But that's not the case. If you do not serve the Lord, then you're actually serving Satan. I don't mean that you necessarily bow down and worship him, but you live agreeable to his will and under his control. You know, if you're not living for God and you think, well, I just am free to do whatever I want to do, well, that's exactly what Satan wants you to think. I'm going to live my life like I want to live it. Well, that's exactly what he was telling Adam and Eve to do in the Garden of Eden. Look, you make the choice. You eat the fruit. You know, you take charge. You can become like God and you can be autonomous and you can be in his place. They didn't bow down and worship the serpent or worship Satan, Adam and Eve, but as soon as they decided, hey, I'm going to go my own way and forget what God has told me, then they started to serve Satan. They did exactly what he wanted them to do. And if we're living our lives without reference to God at all in Christ, then we are under the power of the devil. All people are this way, Paul is telling us, without Christ. And then thirdly, they're living under the power of the flesh. It's, it tells us here that uh, you are uh, sons of dis- disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And this is talking about the, the word passions there, desires. In the Greek, it's, it's, uh, it's really the word over-desire. Uh, we are controlled by things by our desires, by what we want. And those things tend to rule our lives. Uh, When we live without reference to God, without reference to Christ, 
uh, we, we have as our master whatever idol we worship, whatever we put in first place in our lives, whatever we're pursuing. Everybody gets up every day with some purpose or some reason for living. Uh, you know, whatever that might be, it might control you. It does control you. We live under the power of our flesh. We, when we say, I'm free to do what I want, you're actually not free. You're doing what you want, but you're a slave to whatever it is that you want, whatever it is that you're pursuing. Is it a, a, you know, a job promotion? Well, then you're a slave to work. It controls you. If somebody blocks that, then you get angry because somebody's not allowing you uh, to, to be blessed by your idol. But when you follow the Lord, you're no longer under the power of the flesh. Yeah, we do battle with the flesh, but it no longer has its dominion over us. We're not under sin, we're under Christ. So, spiritual death manifests itself in those three ways. We're under the power of the world. We're just following along the world. You know, we may not be even recognizing it, but we're under the power of the devil, and we're subject to whatever desires are in our hearts, and we follow those things, and it usually, well, it always ends uh, in destruction, ultimately. And that's the end of spiritual death. It tells us in verse 3, that by nature we are under God's wrath. We are children of wrath, it says. And that's a Hebrew way of saying that we are under God's wrath for sin. God is a holy God. And if we are in our sins, spiritually dead, without Christ, then we are facing God's wrath. Romans 2 tells us, because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, self-seeking, and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. You 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 may not set out to be opposed to God, But if you just set out to be self-seeking, then you are opposed to God. And there will be wrath and fury because of that. This is the the dim picture, the hopeless picture that Paul paints for those who are without Christ. But of course he's not addressing people who are without Christ. He's addressing people who are in Christ, who have uh, embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior, who have turn from their sins and who are following Christ. He's telling them that look, look at where you once were. You were dead, without hope, without any ability whatsoever. You, you, you could not save yourself. A dead person can't save himself because they're dead. They have no ability to do anything at all. Spiritually dead people don't either. They need divine intervention. Paul is highlighting for us the fact that, yes, once you were dead in sin, once you had no hope, but God did something about it. He broke in. He intervened in a fantastic way, in an unbelievable way. You were lost. You were 0 for 8. You you had been defeated and, and abused, and you were dead. And God is going to raise you to life and make you new, and give you new life, and bless you forever. 
The divine intervention results in spiritual life. And we see that verses 4 through 10. Notice the first verse, of, uh, the first phrase of verse 4, but God. Yeah, you, you, you're dead in sins and trespasses, but God. God jumps in there. The greatest two words in the Bible, but God. You are hopeless. You had, you had nothing going for you. Uh, you are dead, but God intervened. Verse 5, when we were dead, we were dead. He made us alive. He brought spiritual life into our souls. It is, verse 8, not your own doing. You didn't do it. You didn't say, hey, you know, I'm going to wake up and smell the coffee. I'm going to change my ways. No, that's not what this is about. This is not turning over a new leaf. This is divine intervention, God breaking in. God bringing life where there was death. Verse 9, it's not a result of works. You know, some people might think, hey, I'm going to clean up my act. I'm going I'm to do better and, and, and God will save me because I'm a good person. Well, this is telling you, no, it's, it's God's work. It's not your work. God saves you because of what he does, not because of what you do. It's not a result of works. And then verse 10, uh, it says that uh, we are his workmanship. And, and in the Greek, you, you can change the word order around in Greek. And this is one of those verses where they change the word order, order around. And, and if they want to stress a word, sometimes they'll put it at the beginning. So in the Greek, they took the word his and they stuck it at the beginning. So if you wanted to really uh, make an accurate translation in English, this, this sounds kind of strange... But the, the verse is saying, His workmanship we are. If you read it in context, it's not a result of works so that no one can boast. You can't say, well, I've, I've risen from the dead because I, was, you know, I, I got it together. It's not a result of works. It's not anything that you've done. We are His workmanship. His workmanship we are. His workmanship, that word there, we'll talk about it in a minute, means uh, something that he has created, a, a work of art, actually. Created. His workmanship we are. Created. He did it. He created it. Not you yourself. A lot of people like to throw around slogans. and A slogan that people will throw around is, God helps those who help themselves. Well, that is, not a biblical, uh, that is not biblical at all. God helps those who help themselves is not from the Bible. It's actually from the ancient Greeks. As Paul emphasizes in this section, the truth of the matter is actually the opposite. God helps those who are helpless. Even more, he helps those who are his enemies who have eschewed and broken and transgressed his holy law, who are dead and without any ability to do anything at all. He, he comes in, and just like he called Lazarus from the tomb, who was dead and all wrapped up in the grave clothes, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And at that moment, his words was spoken, and that man came alive. We're spiritually dead, and when God's word is spoken into our souls and the Spirit brings life there, then we can repent. Then we can turn from our sin and turn to him. 
But we need something miraculous to happen, divine intervention. And now we can talk about a football team, you know, having a terrible season one year and then winning the championship the next year. But we know that they, did a, they, had, they put in a lot of hard work. They said, you know, we stink, and we're going to do something about it. We're going we're to work harder this year. We're going we're to play harder. We're going to get it together and scheme better. You know, they did something to change the, the course of the next year. That's not what this is about. This is about people who, who couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't change. They couldn't work harder to, to make anything different. God had to come in and do something, something amazing and incredible. What did he do? What is the result of this divine intervention? Well, three things he, he lists there. We're made alive together with Christ. We're made alive together with Christ. Raised up with him, with Christ. And seated with him, with Christ, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus made alive, raised up, and seated with him in the heavenly places. What does that mean? Well, when you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's a doctrine called the union, union with Christ. You are united with him. See, everybody is represented by one of two people. You know, we, we have a government, and we're represented by politicians, and we elected for good or for ill, whether we like them or not, you know, they got voted in. And Well, we didn't have a vote with our first representative. That was Adam. Adam represented the human race in the Garden of Eden. And that's why we're spiritually dead, because he ate the forbidden fruit. He turned from God. He went his own way. And that sin that he committed, we all sinned with him and in him. Because he's our representative. He's our, as the theologians like to put it, our federal head. As our representative, he sinned and we sinned. We are all born. We call it original sin. We all have it. We have a sin nature because of Adam. What's on offer for us is to trade our representative. You know, we, we have, uh, you know, maybe someone that we have in government over us and maybe we don't like the representative that we have elected there. Well, when the next election comes around, we vote somebody else in. That's the way it should work. The same thing. We have a representative who did us a a grave disservice, brought death into our existence. But there's a new candidate. Jesus Christ. He came, and in his life, he completely and perfectly fulfilled God's law. He always, every moment that he ever lived, always did what his heavenly Father wanted him to do. He never broke a commandment. He never sinned. He always did what was right. He always loved the Father. Uh, with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, he always loved his neighbor as himself. So he went through an entire life of perfection. And because of the virgin birth, he didn't have that sin nature that we all have. So Jesus Christ is the new representative that is out there for us. 
And in his life, he fulfilled the law perfectly. But then he died. But he didn't die just for himself or for his sins because he was sinless. He died again as a representative to stand in the place of sinners, people who were dead in sins and trespasses like you and me. And he underwent the wrath of God. We're all children of wrath. He underwent that in our place. The wrath of God. Say, yeah, he suffered on the cross physically, but what was more painful and the greater suffering was the the suffering in his soul. He endured hell on the cross, the wrath of God being poured out on sin. The Bible tells us that he became sin embodied, sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So Christ in his life, in his death, can represent us, but also in his resurrection. He rose from the dead. So when you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior, all that he did in his life, death, and resurrection is yours. You are declared righteous based on his righteousness. Your account is traded. He takes your sin and you're declared righteous because his record is given to you. You're declared righteous because of his record. You are uh, cleansed of your sin because the, the, the punishment has already been borne. Justice has already been poured out on Christ. And then you have the promise of knowing that if he raised, was raised from the dead and he was given a glorified body and is in heaven for eternity, then yes, you will get that too. He is the first fruits of those born from the dead, the Bible tells us. So we are made alive together with Christ, raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. All that is ours because we are united to him. We want him as our representative, and that's what we get. With Adam as our representative, we get death. With Christ as our representative, we get life, eternal life. Christ came and offered himself on the cross to deal with our most fundamental, pervasive, and eternally devastating problem, that our sins have made us the objects of the wrath of a holy God. And like Lazarus, he calls us forth from the tomb. So that's the result of divine intervention. I just want to highlight to you the motive. Why would God do such a thing? Why would he send his only son into the world to die and to suffer in the place of people who who willingly go against him? Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace, through faith, because of the love of a God who is rich in mercy. That word rich means abundant in mercy. He is merciful, but not just merciful. He's rich in mercy. He's got loads of mercy. Uh, you know, you think of uh, wealthy people. You know, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller. You know, they had so much money they couldn't count it all. God has so much mercy. You can't count it all. He's rich in mercy. Great love, not just any old love, but a great love with which he loved us. He tells his people in Deuteronomy, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. It is just because the Lord loves you. And that's why he does it. 
He tells us here that it's just a free gift. It's by grace, not something that you deserve. Of course, it's Christmas season, and we're all hoping to get presents under the tree. And, you know, we're thinking about what we want. I think there's a difference, and maybe I'm making a false distinction here, but I'm, I'm going to make this false distinction, you know, may, maybe I'm saying it all wrong, but I'm going to make a point. There's a, I think there's a difference between gifts and presents. I would classify what you get at Christmas and in your birthday as presents. Christmas presents, birthday presents. A gift is something you get when you didn't deserve it, it's not a special occasion. It's when a husband comes home with flowers. It's not the anniversary. It's when, uh, you know, the, 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 the parents say, hey, kids, let's go to Chuck E. Cheese in the middle of the week. It's not even the weekend. You know, it's, a, it's just a free gift. Like our friends over in Bay St. Louis, it's lanyap. It's extra. You weren't expecting it. Christmas gifts are not, or Christmas presents, they're not gifts. You're expecting to get that. And if you don't get one, you're going to be upset that somebody didn't think of you and give you a present. And it's your birthday. You expect, you're going to get at least a card. I made the mistake one year of not even getting Sarah a card. That was not a good day. (laughs) She was expecting something. Well, the point I'm making is this. Salvation, what God has done for us, is a gift. We had no reason to expect it. It came out of the blue. It came with no obligation to give it. It's just because he loved us and set it on us and because he's rich in mercy and decided to do it. Well, briefly, in the final point, the purpose of divine intervention He tells us in verse 10, just to tie a bow on this thing, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He's pulled us out of the pit. He's pulled us from the grave, given us life, but he's he's continuing to do something with us. He, He has a plan for us. There's a purpose behind it. We are his workmanship, created for good works. Now, the workman, the word workmanship here is the Greek word poema. And we get our English word poem from that. Uh, the word means, uh, like, it's like a work of art. Every believer is essentially a work of art, God's work of art. And you think about an artist, consider how they work, uh, whether they're writers or musicians or painters or sculptors or, or whatever they might be. They labor long and hard and with the utmost care and detail to attention had a friend in Clarksdale uh, who was one of the greatest American portrait artists uh, in, in, a, in the United States. And uh, he passed away uh, not too long ago. But I remember him telling me one time that he said art is hard work. You know, he goes in, he went into his studio and would stay there all day just working his craft. Uh, he, he produced a book that that showed some of his early drawings, he would adopt a style like Picasso or you know, uh, some of the other great ones, and he would m- try to master that style, and he worked hard at it, and he became a master himself. So an artist works hard you know, creating a work of art. 
Sometimes they do very little, only a stroke here or there. Other times they make massive changes. But they always seek to bring the raw material into line with an artistic vision. I remember I took art class in high school, and the last semester uh, of my senior year, I spent the whole semester carving a piece of wood. And uh, at the end of the semester, I named that piece of artwork Firewood, because that was its ultimate destination. I wasn't much of an artist, but God is a wonderful artist. And sometimes he's chipping away things that are, you know, that shouldn't be there. And it's hard. And then sometimes he's just doing a little adjustment. But he's doing something for us. Paul is telling us here that God labors over all believers through their entire lives, intervening and guiding and shaping us, bringing us into line with the vision he has for us. And thus God has a particular set of good works for us to do, for which he prepares us for our whole lives. Isn't God good? He's taken us from being without hope and absolutely dead in our sins, and he raises us up, gives us new life, new hope, uh, an eternal hope, and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as it told us in chapter 1. And then he's got something for us to do for his glory. How good is God? If you're here today and you've not embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, if he's not representing you, then just call upon him. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. If you have that inclination, the Holy Spirit's you know, working in your heart, breathing life, you need to respond to that. You need to see yourself and all your brokenness and your sin and repent of that. Turn from those sins and say, Lord, I want to endeavor to follow you in my life. I want to put my faith in you. And the Lord, if anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, he will be saved or she will be saved. What good news that is. Christmas good news. that Christ came into the world to do this wonderful thing for us, to bring us from death to life. Let's pray together.